And I look back at my playing career and I start being actually quite impressed. I thought I did quite well, actually. But throughout the whole of it, I never felt like that. And the analogy he uses for that is, if I've got five things that I need to land, it's not going to work. If I throw five balls at you, how many will you catch? Success doesn't come in straight lines would be the first one. Like you, you, When you feel like you're not making progress, you are. Hi, I am Tatiana Pandurovic and welcome to Moonshot, a space where comfort zones don't exist. Having spent most of my life scared to take risks, the one thing I am seeking now is to be surrounded by more people who are courageous, bold, unafraid and relentless in their pursuit for success to help inspire me and hopefully you. In this podcast, we dive deep into the minds of individuals who see no limits, those who dream big and defy boundaries. Let's rise together. Today on Moonshot, I'm joined by Paul Devlin, a former professional rugby player, elite performance coach and global sports leader at Amazon Web Services. Paul has more than 20 years of experience at almost every layer of the elite sports industry. Having spent 10 years as a professional rugby player across Europe, Paul transitioned to high-performance coaching, where he has coached some of the world's best athletes, including the likes of Cameron Smith, Greg Inglis, and Robert Whittaker. With over 15 years' experience providing consultancy to top sports organisations around the world, Paul is now at the forefront of shaping the future of sports with cutting-edge technology at Amazon Web Services. Join me for this incredibly inspiring conversation. Paul is a captivating storyteller and shares a wealth of knowledge around high performance, the mindset of the world's best athletes, and his role in shaping the future of sports. This has been my longest conversation on the podcast so far, and you'll soon find out why. Let's dive in. Paul, welcome to the Moonshot Podcast. You've come here straight from the Australian Open, which is a great place to start. How was day one at the Aussie Open? Well, first thing, the weather. So obviously going to Melbourne, you never know what the weather's going to do. So we had great weather, a remarkable, remarkable game, Novak Djokovic. I was fortunate to see him in the quarterfinal last year as well. So, you know, when you're seeing someone as elite as him in his prime, and then for me, I was supporting the underdog. Right, young kid, 18, first Grand Slam. So, yeah, when we arrived, we kind of expected it to probably be a 40 minute, uh, 50 minute match. It'll be over quickly. Let's just get rid sets. of him. Some, a couple of people said he might play with him, might play about with him a little bit and just practice some different shots. Two hours in, the crowd were all just singing, Dino, Dino. You know, it was going off inside the, uh, the Rod Laver. But, like, what an inspiration. And I, Actually, one of the things um, I'm sure we're going to talk about leadership today, but talk about role model behaviours. Um, but Novak's interview on court after after the game, I just thought it was fantastic. All he did was just give credit to Dino, as you'd expect. Like he's half his age for him to compete with him, but it was the manner that he competed with him. So yeah. But aside from that, you know, um, I know you're a tennis star as well. But the 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 Oz Open, I've been for the last three years. Work a lot with Tennis Australia. It's uh, it's just getting better every year. Craig Tiley and the team there are just doing a remarkable job. The whole you, you can just go in there, get a ground pass, and just go and explore the different outlets that are there, opportunities for kids. 
we're very fortunate to have such a such a genuinely global competition. It's an incredible event. And I know a lot of my friends that have gone and they're not even tennis fans. Yeah. They're often surprised by yeah. just how inclusive the event is and how yeah. great it is. Like it's incredible. If anyone hasn't gone to Australian Open, obviously I'm biased being a tennis fan, but I could not recommend it more highly. Yeah. And like, look, I don't know an awful lot about tennis, nowhere near clearly what you would. I just love watching elite sport and elite athletes in their prime. It's incredibly inclusive. You're exactly right. Like, And what they focus heavily on is bringing fans close to the action. You could be sat on one of the outer courts, literally like two metres from someone who's been world number one. It's remarkable. You can't get that in many other sports. You no. can't get that close to a Formula One car, for example. No, definitely not. They're very unique. But it was, yeah, it's amazing. Great weather they've had down there as well, which, which does help. Um, for obvious reasons. So, yeah, it's it's a remarkable event and we were so fortunate to get a, a, an amazing game. Oh, night. an incredible round one clash. Mm. Who's going to win? Probably Novak, right? Who, how could you not say him? I mean, he never really looked flustered. He's such a champion. I'm going to say Novak wins, wins the men's and maybe Osaka wins the women's. And so great to see her back as yeah. well. Would they be good predictions in your opinion? I think Osaka will be interesting because this is mm. one of her very first tournaments, if not first tournament back. Yeah. Uh, but you never know, world-class athlete, multiple yeah. Grand Slam champion. This episode will be released, in fact, after <laughs> the finals, so we'll be able to see how your predictions actually yeah, pan well, if out. If I get a double there, I wish I'd gone to the bookies with nice. But that's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty... They, they'd both be pretty short odds, I think. But I, I really hope... I think they started a day earlier. I hope lots of people turn out and they get a bumper crowd. I know Craig Talia said in the media they're expecting a bumper crowd. Um, it's just it's a great way to kick off the sporting calendar. Yeah, absolutely. And I read that I think even on day one they had work, like record breaking crowds. Yeah. They had over eighty thousand attendees on yeah. that first day, which is just incredible. Yeah. What I'm really interested to hear from you on, you've spent a lot of time around world class athletes and yep. The Aussie Open is, is one example, but in various capacities. What do you see as common traits among top athletes? It's a great question, and I consider this all the time. I've gone from being a player to a coach. I think if I think about the, the true elite, like the best in the world that I've worked with, you know, I'm fortunate to have worked with guys like Cam Smith, Greg Inglis in the NRL, they're genuine international superstars. But even then I worked a fair bit with uh, Rob Whittaker, who's a UFC fighter who equally world-class. And the one thing you see from them is an absolute obsession getting better. And so interestingly with all three of those and many of the others, like I couldn't keep naming, very fortunate to have worked with these people, others, but an incredible humility about them as well. Um, and I think, they go hand in hand. Like that humility continues a beginner's mindset and a desire to learn and get better. Even though they were, when I was working with them, all regarded as the best in the world in their positions at the time, you know, certainly in those three cases. They and, what, and what does that look like? Like if you had to take one of them. Yeah. Oh, well, if you take Cameron Smith, for example, he's, um, he's potentially one of the best, if not the best ever rugby league player. And, um, 
I rocked up to Melbourne Storm. It was the first club I worked for in Australia from the UK. And this was in the capacity as a performance coach yeah. for the Melbourne Storm? Yeah, yeah. So strength and conditioning coach. And, and I was really a nobody, really. You know, I'd played professional rugby league and rugby union, but not in Australia. I had played in Australia, but not in Australian competition. And so how you treat somebody is how you treat everybody, they say. And, and the way Cam Smith treated me, he was the captain of the club, of course, so there was potentially a responsibility there. But still to this day, I'm blown away. Everybody you talk to, I can almost guarantee, would tell you the same stories about the level of humility that he's got. But then if you take his training and what that looks like, and he's not alone, but just to focus on him, he's just obsessed. I remember saying to him, because he was, I was there when he was getting on a bit, I remember saying to him once after one of the games, having a few beers, which he always does after a game, enjoys himself and celebrates the win. He'd stay in his kit in the dressing rooms after. And I said, why do you do that? He said, because I absolutely love it. Like, I just love the game, love playing it. I never get up and think, oh, God, I've got training today. How am I going to get through it? There's old saying there's no perseverance without passion. And the perseverance to be at that level where every team that he plays against every week for probably the last six or eight years, maybe 10, honestly, of his career, every single team would have spent all week trying to stop him. And yet very few people ever did. And so that re that requires continuous excellence. And I think you can only get that with perseverance and you can only have that with genuine, genuine passion for what you do. Yeah, and I, and I think you said it just a little earlier there as well, curiosity to get better all the yeah. time. Because if you don't have that, it's very hard to maintain that drive. And I think you summarise that when you talk about the obsession. Yeah, and I think as well there, there's a skill in self-reflection that he's willing to and other champions are willing to look at themselves with no filter. Because it, you know, this is another saying, I love a quote, by the way, so you'll probably fire out a thousand in this podcast. But um, when you're good, you tell people. When you're great, they tell you. You know? And and he's like that. I like Incredibly that. humble. Tried to deflect kind of fame. Just Just wanted to train with the boys. Put the team first, always. But he had a thirst for getting better. And it was hard, like... I remember another one, Billy Slater, is another, both commentators now, but obviously Billy's the Maroons coach. But I remember turning up as a strength and conditioning coach there and looking at those two guys. New in Australia, you know, I really wanted to make a career out here, really wanted to make an impression at the club. And I remember saying to the staff at the time, how the hell am I going to help them? They don't need me. What do I know that they don't? And yet both of them could not have treated me any more kindly and my family, in fact bent over backwards to integrate me into the environment and the culture that they had down there. And, and yeah, we're, we're totally open to any advice from a strength and conditioning perspective uh, I might have had that could, that could possibly help them. I think that desire to learn from everybody, you can always learn something from everybody, is probably another trait of, of the genuine champions. And Rob Whittaker is another great example. Him and his coach, Alex Pratt, who's just a legend of a human being, firstly, as is Rob, but they're just continually looking for ways to get better. And that's how we got to know him. He came and spent time with the clubs. Alex was one of the wrestling coaches, um, or was the lead wrestling coach at a number of the clubs I worked at. And, and he really helped because he brought humility to the organisation, Alex. Um, but then obviously involving Rob. Rob wanted to learn from other sports. How can I get better? And that's a world champion. It's incredible how common those traits are amongst top athletes, mm. irrespective of which sport or field they may be in. And 
You were a professional Union Elite player yourself. You've played at clubs like Widners, the Cell Sharks, Munster, the Cornish Pirates. How did your own experience build your mental and physical resilience? Well, in, in my personal story, from a, from a playing perspective, it's probably, I've reflected on this a lot, right? Because I look at my career now, look back as I'm, you know, I'm over 40. I think 40 is a kind of pivotal age to start considering life. And I look back at my playing career and I start being actually quite impressed. I thought I did quite well, actually. But throughout the whole of it, I never felt like that. At no point in my playing career did I ever feel like I was doing well, which is sad, isn't it? Like I was played in teams that won cups um, at the elite end, played full of in a team at Munster in, in Ireland uh, where I was the only one who wasn't an international. There was eight British Lions in that team. It was stacked full of superstars, and I was the only one who wasn't, which is an amazing achievement in and of itself. So how were you feeling when you were in the teams? Constantly feeling inadequate. Just constantly feeling like, I need to get better, I need to get better, I'm not good enough. I was absolutely obsessed with getting better and never enjoyed the ride. Like, I look back at my playing career and the traits of resilience were so clear. Like, I was obsessed with getting better. Everything was about sport everything and what did that look like in practice what were some of your habits yeah so because it's one thing you were feeling this constant need to improve yeah what did that look like for you so I was um I was always data driven which is probably why I ended up moving into tech as well it's interesting Uh, looking at your life in retrospect yeah it is and remember the old uh, polar heart rate monitors like when they first come out and then they made this really big one it was chunky and you could stick a, a strap around your chest and it gave you live feedback. Check your heart rate. I had that in every training session. I used to tape it up when coaches said I couldn't wear it. So I, I was always reading and trying to learn, especially on the physical side, because I could quantify improvement there. Um, so what it looked like from a habits perspective is a really, really strong approach to nutrition because I can control that. You know, preparation, how I turn up and train, um, how I drive standards in the team, I was very, very focused on trying to control the controllables. Um, I was also heavily influenced, as I think everybody is, by the by the people around me. And I was fortunate to play in some very, very good teams with some exceptional individuals who I learned a lot from. But I always just felt like like I, I wasn't quite good enough, you know, which which is sad because clearly I, I was at certain stages, but never felt like I was. Did you ever grow out of that feeling? No. No, I didn't. I retired. I had nine knee surgeries, so I ended up retiring reasonably early and becoming a high-performance coach. But that really helped me because I'd been the player who was injured a lot because I'd had nine knee surgeries. I had two knee reconstructions, missed years with knee injuries. You had nine knee surgeries? Yeah. Oh, sorry, nine knee injuries. Nine surgeries. Yeah, probably more than nine injuries. Is this during your playing career? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nine knee surgeries, which back then wasn't hugely uncommon. A finger reconstruction as well and shoulder injections and whatnot. But the being injured a fair bit and, and you know, that's a, that's a challenge. Like people look at elite sport and see what I'm talking about earlier with Novak playing in, in round one and that game and, and, you know, the young kid Dino playing against them. What they don't see is what you and I know, which is the other side, which is it's consistent setbacks. That's what elite sport is. And being an athlete, it's coming back consistently from setbacks So I found when I took over, became a coach, I had significant proven experience and credibility with players as a player who was injured a lot and had to fight back, a player who didn't get picked, 
for for a short period of my time, I was one of the better players in the team. Who was maybe one of the first ones picked in the team, and so I'd I'd missed out on cup finals. I'd kind of been through so many things that I could relate to all of them. Because in a squad, say in the NRL or in rugby union, you've got between thirty and sixty players depending on the group, and and you need to be able to relate to all of them because they're all individuals. They're not robots. They're all individuals. And I found that my experience as a player felt valuable then. Back to your question, though, when I was playing, and I'm disappointed in myself for this, but I've kind of reflected on it. I, I never felt proud of myself when I was playing, which is so sad. Do you feel proud of yourself now when you look back I'm getting at your achievements? Better. Yeah, I'm getting better, but I still feel like I failed because I didn't achieve my goal. What was your goal? This is the point, I'm not sure. Just to be the best. But what's the best? The best that you can be is what you should be. So we were talking earlier about the high performance podcast. But can you ever be the best you can be because you can always improve? Exactly. Or was the goal to be the best in the sport or were you really holding the bar against yourself? Yeah, I think I just had an impossibly high bar for myself and no matter what I achieved, I didn't think it was good enough. There's always something You else. were like, I could do better. Yeah, because there's always something, isn't there? I mean, yeah. you win the world championship in tennis, for example, you got to win it again. <laughs> You're like, what? So you can be world-class. Well, in rugby, in, in team sports, I was in. Getting picked in the team, really, is job one. Then the team winning is the most important thing. Um, and if the team wins and you maintain your place in the team, really, that's success. And then if the team wins enough games to win a competition, that's success. And I was fortunate to play in cup finals and win games, but equally, I missed out. So I just think I was probably looking back a bit immature, and so all of that transferred to me as a coach, I think helped make me a better coach than I was a player maybe because I didn't want anyone else to go through that. And even though I built resilience, and I think that was important for me, I didn't want anyone else to feel that sense of like never being good enough despite constantly progressing. You had the understanding of what a player might go through. Yeah. What was it like making that transition? Because something a lot of athletes find challenging and struggle with is going from an athlete to any other pursuit yeah. because, as you would know, you are consistently training to be the best and you've got a particular mindset. Mm. Making a transition, whether it be a career in corporate world or doing something else, I mean, you stepped into strength and conditioning coaching. You were still yeah. very closely related to the field but you weren't yeah. a player anymore. Yeah. What was that transition like? There's a funny – well, not funny, but there's a story to this. So – I was in France playing and strength and conditioning practice was very different and it frustrated me. I'd come from being at Munster where we won the European Cup. Um, we were the best team and that's the highest you can get, right? So we were the best club team. And then I got a great offer to move to the top 14 and play in France, which I took, thought it'd be great. Uh, my now wife came with me and it was so different. It was the highest level of rugby in France, which some regarded at the time as the highest level of club rugby in a, in a club competition. I'm not sure. But the culture shock was massive. And How I was loved it different? They, they just didn't value gym-based training like the rest of Europe at the time. They didn't value conditioning training, running conditioning. Uh, it was just play, just play to train, whereas the approach in the rest of Europe was train to play, if that makes sense. And so it was a huge culture shock for me. Uh, I found it really challenging. I turned up to the gym on the first day and nobody turned up. on the You know, 10.30 on the schedule, no one turned up. And... Um, when someone did turn up, it was a guy smoking a, an espresso, uh, drinking an espresso and smoking a cigarette. And he said, oh, no one really does gym here, Paul. Training's at five o'clock tonight. And this heat. was when you joined as a player? This was an elite 
full-time professional, top 14 French rugby club. And so it was a massive shock to me. Yet we finished eighth in the top 14 that year. So during that year, the expats, the non-French guys, um, they were a bit frustrated. And so I started researching and reading about strength and conditioning science and the, you know the principles of how you develop as an athlete. I was collecting my data already. And so I started taking running sessions on a Wednesday morning and writing strength sessions, which quite frankly were completely plagiarized from the good strength and conditioning coaches I'd had in the UK and Europe. So I started running those sessions. Then I, I uh, signed up, got onto the Masters in Strength and Conditioning Science at St. Mary's Uni in London. Distance, uh, I had to travel in reasonably frequently for practical coaching um, lessons. And um, then I signed back in the UK with Cornish Pirates. And so I was playing with Cornish Pirates, did a year there. And in the off-season after the first year, I was invited to play in uh, an International Sevens tournament in Italy. Invitation only. You're supposed to ask the permission of the club. But six of us were going, so I said, no, come on, Sadiq, we'll just go. So we went, it's only a sevens competition, it's kind of for a laugh. We managed, we had a really good team, we managed to get to the final, playing against the Fiji Select team in Rome, Rome Stadium, and I went to do a crazy Benji Marshall-style sidestep and did my ACL. Oh, wow. So at that point, I had a one-year-old. My wife was on my, no, no, I would have had a two-year-old just two, or nearly two. My wife was on maternity leave, uh, ready to give birth to our second daughter. So no no income, really. And it was day one pre-season when I flew back from Italy. How did you feel at that time? Well, horrendous, because I walked in and the CEO said, with, with the owner of the club at the time, said, okay, we're going to have to sack you. You're gone. Because it's a breach of contract that you play for another team. In your contract, they says you're not allowed to play for another team. So I went home and I was called my agent at the time. He was like, nothing you can do. And, and epi- I just had an epiphany and I still to this day can't explain where this came from. It was a feeling? Yeah, I, I just got this thought of what if? And so um, the irony is I've just finished the sports law masters and it feels like I, I should have known that back then. I went back in next day and I just said, can I just check? You're not sacking me because I got injured. It's because I played for another team and they said, yeah, nice. Well, Surely then the precedent is if you sack me, you need to sack everyone else who played in the team. Because it doesn't matter if I got injured, that's irrelevant. They were like, well, no one else played. I said, yeah, they did. There were six other players in the team. Six starters played in the tournament with me, so you need to sack them too. And the CEO said, well, who are they? I said, I'm not telling you. And back then, the internet wasn't like it is now. You couldn't track and trace everything. It would have been hard for them to get the information. And the head coach, Chris Sterling, who's a great bloke from New Zealand, he worked a lot with the All Blacks. He's very, very well qualified. He said, why don't we come to a peace agreement here? Because I was one of the higher paid players at the club at the time. So it was, a, you know, it was getting, he's not going to help us. He said, Paul's been studying. He's really helping out with strength and conditioning. Why don't we make him strength and conditioning and nutrition? Because I've been doing a lot in nutrition. And so long story short, they gave me that role for the year. And I dived into it with both feet. Like I gave them everything. I tried to create the most professional environment for the team because I felt really guilty too. I wasn't happy about it. I was out with my second ACL. I was a bit older at this point. My wife is a physio, so that kind of helped, but she was on maternity leave. And so that's how I got into strength and conditioning science. So that was my transition. And I've speak to strength and conditioning coaches and ex-players or you know even aging players all the time now about how do you plan your transition and much as I haven't got a great story about, <laughs> of how to plan your transition 
What I do know is that researching and being passionate about something that can allow you to transition is the only reason I ended up literally saving myself in that situation. Wow, that is an incredible story. Yeah, because it, I mean, when I say we we would have, it was during the global financial crisis at the time too, like we, we would have been bankrupt. We would have, it would have been complete disaster. And the irony is that if you fast forward like three or four years, my career went so quick. It advanced so quick for me. I was in a hole, in an absolute hole, and it was all my fault. You know, I should have told them. They probably would have let me go. Should have told them. I should have got their, their agreements to go. And yeah, so, so I fell into it, but it, yeah, but it you advanced all, very quickly. But you also had set yourself up to be able to, it's not even necessarily capitalise an opportunity, yeah. but to create an opportunity for yourself. Yeah. And you've done a lot of studies as well into the field. You yourself were obviously obsessed with getting better. You then dive into this new profession. You're, yeah. sh- you're a strength and conditioning coach. How did you, what were the most effective strategies that you were able to deploy to make other rugby players better? Yeah. So firstly, it was, uh, I always say, if, if you find the right job, you never work a day in your life. You know that quote? And I absolutely found the right job because it never felt like work, even though, you know, I talked about feeling inadequate and it being really hard and being a player. How do people do that just by following something that they're yeah, deeply connected to, how they're passionate about? Because not most people, in fact, don't have the privilege yeah. of working in roles where they can say that. Like yeah, it's yeah. an incredible thing yeah. to be able to be on that journey. I think it probably comes from personality type as well. Like I'm quite an enthusiastic person. Like I wasn't of the state of, well, if I'm not working in something that I'm super passionate about, then I'm just going to leave. Like I became a rugby player because I was, you know, my dad coached me when I was young and really helped me. And I was fortunate enough that I progressed and hit a standard where, you know, I was very fortunate, um, but then took my chance, I suppose. And then in the coaching side of it, I think if I go into when I became a strength and conditioning coach, um, quite frankly, looking back, the first probably 12 months, 18 months, I, I literally plagiarised all the work that I'd done with previous coaches who then became my mentors. You so, saw what worked well oh, and then I you just, replicated I that. replicated what worked well for me, which I think most S&C coaches who go from playing to S&C probably do because um, it's natural, right? It just, well, it worked for me, it must work for everybody. Quickly found out that's not the case. What did you learn? Yeah, exactly. That's not the case. Um, it just, it doesn't work like that. So you have to understand, like everything I've done in my life, I've changed careers or changed trajectory a number of times now, I've always started with a theoretical framework. And so that looks like research and study. I just think you need to know. So I'd finished my master's in strength and conditioning science, but I've been doing loads of coaching, trying to develop a coach's eye. I was very, very fortunate to meet um, an English guy who's in Australia, Kelvin Giles, who became my mentor. And he's like the godfather of strength and conditioning, I think, around the world. Um, I literally, how, did, how did you meet him? So good good story again. I, I emailed it. So I'd been reading all his stuff because when I was doing my master's, you do a lot of research and um, his name just kept coming up. And his he developed a philosophy as a coach. And my philosophy just aligned. Everything he said, I thought was gold. And he's taught to be critical in a master's. And I just couldn't criticize what he said. I was like, this, everything he says makes sense. That's how we need to prepare athletes. He'd been amazingly successful. He set up the Australian Institute of Sport, for example. That was his idea. He built it. What were some of his philosophies? So, well, obsession with getting better, foundational fundamentals in developing athletes, so from the ground up, and, and not progressing until you'd mastered 
what you were doing. So from a movement perspective, if you can't do a single leg squat, you're not moving on to bilateral squat. So master the lunge. Foundational functional movements are the fulcrum of everything. When you think about it, he used to use this phrase, he'd say, think about those movements as being the letters of the alphabet. When we play sport, we write novels. If you can't create words, which is a bunch of movements put together, is a skill, right? So running and changing direction and passing the ball, think of all the movements that go into that. They're letters that write words, that write a narrative which is movement in a game. If you remove the ball and just watch someone move, all of those movements they have to do at maximum effort to achieve high performance without breaking, without getting injured. When you wind it right back, that analogy he used about it's like the letters of the alphabet. And if you go back to the foundations, can you stand on one leg and jump in the air and land perfectly in alignment? Yes that is no? one of the most poetic ways I've heard sports development talked about. Yeah, he's a genius. Long-term athletic development genius. I'd encourage any listeners. He's very famous. Getting on now, uh, which you'll hate me saying, but he is a genuine genius. And so I was, everything I read about him I loved. I, I would pay for myself to go to any conference he was speaking at and sit in the front row, and I'd write the same notes over and over. I mean, over and over. I still got the books, and um, I was really, trying to learn it. It's really interesting that you talk about that. I was listening to a couple of podcasts recently by really successful entrepreneurs and advice they would give to yeah. people that are just starting out. And across a couple of different podcasts, the number one advice they gave is don't focus so much on the what but on the who. Yeah. Find someone in, in whichever field you want to study, pursue, whether it be sport or business, but find someone who is exceptional yeah. and work for them, learn from them. Like that is one of the fastest way to accelerate your growth in anything that you're doing. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, and I emailed him in the end, got his email, um, which is openly available, right? It was openly available enough to go hard to get it. And I emailed him and said, uh, because I knew he was pretty direct. I heard him speak a lot. You know, he wouldn't want me sucking up to him, but I was like, I love everything you do. I really want to be like you. Will you mentor me? Not sure what that looks like, but I'll do anything you ask of me. I just want to learn from you and I want to be able to bounce ideas off you. And he replied back within about an hour and said, uh, you know, because, yeah, I'll tell that in a sec, but he replied back within about an hour and he said, um, not sure what you'll learn from me, but yeah, happy to help any way I can which is ironic because when I worked at Melbourne Storm, I worked for Craig Bellamy, who's regarded and I think is the best NRL coach ever. And when I left, I'd only been there a year, the impact he'd had on me, like I just watched everything he did, listened to everything that he said, wrote down notes. I watched his communications with players. I was obsessed with how amazing he was and he had no idea. He had no idea how good he was because he's so humble. And when I left, I made a point of... I gave him a big hug and I just said, I just want to tell you, I cannot tell you how much I've learned from you. And he went, what? He was genuinely shocked. You've, wow, have you learned anything from me? I'm a coach. You're an S&C coach. Like, you haven't got a clue. Like, the way you deliver meetings, your presence when you speak, the way you set standards, the way you manage the group, the way you manage different, and I went through all the different things and he went, oh, God, that's amazing. I think there's another kind of, say success leaves clues. It's one of um, Damien's quotes. And I think he, they're both examples, both Kelvin. Ironically, they both worked together back in the day. Kelvin and Craig in that um, they're so humble, they don't even realise how good they are. They don't even realise they're helping when they are helping. 
And so Kelvin said he would mentor me. And uh, what that looked like was he was there for advice, sage wisdom. Everything he said made so much sense to me. But equally, he pulled me into line on numerous occasions where I was getting a bit excited. Things might have been going pretty well for me. And I'd say something, he'd just say, shut up. That's stupid. Pull your head in. And he was the most critical ever of my coaching. So I was, I was really obsessed with becoming a better coach. So you can learn the theory, which I did, but I wanted to be a really, really good coach to be able to see when athletes move, why are they moving that way and how can we improve it to improve performance? And so I spent a lot of time observing world-class coaches like Dan Pfaff. If you know Dan Pfaff, the sprint coach, very no, famous sprint coach at Altis in America now. He worked with the Great Britain team in, in the Olympics in London. Um, Calvin had, had worked with him as well. And I'll never forget an experience, again, world-class performer, in coaching who I was trying to learn from and I paid to do a, a course with him at um, the Wanderers here in Sydney. And uh, I, <laughs> he watched, an athlete did a run through and he said, um, turned around and he said, tell me what you see. And I'm thinking, well, I can't see anything wrong. Is it's, this from watching an athlete do a just sprint? Just watching an athlete do a sprint through 40 metres. I'm thinking, that was a great run. What's wrong with that? Like I had no idea. And we'd been spent two days learning what to look for and what not. Couldn't see it. And I'd been coaching for eight years at this point. I had lots of experience. And what was it that he wanted you to he, see? He, he he could just see things others can't. In this case, it was that his right shoulder was fixed and that's what was giving him left adductor pain. Because his right shoulder wasn't moving. When he was printing. Yeah, his right shoulder was fixed. He was hitching it and holding it in a in a fixed position because he had a weakness at his left adductor, his groin, that was causing that. And so he said, watch this. And when he replayed it in slow motion, it you was so it. obvious. I remember thinking, you know, it's great, great for the ego. I remember thinking, oh my God. And equally, the reason why I tell that story is when I'd invite Kelvin into all the clubs that I'd work, work at and say, come and watch us coach and tell us what we can improve. He was always, he'd always be brutal with everybody, but especially with me, you know, and he'd point out, um, so he made me better. He challenged me. You know, when you come from sport, you want that, don't you? You want that really direct and brutal feedback all the time. Because, it's the, because it's the only way to grow. It's the only way to grow, but it, I think you become um, a bit addicted to it as well because you, you see that it makes you grow. And so pussyfooting round and, oh, you know, and that doesn't work, I think, when you've been in sport. I'm sure you would agree. It's, it's really hard. You need direct feedback. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Away. And I've often thought... Because I've been in various different corporate roles for now close to 10 years yeah. since I stopped training to be a professional tennis player. And I've often thought it's really interesting in, in sports, having coaches is a completely normal thing. They yeah. are there yeah. to make you better. Yeah. And they're giving you constant feedback. Whereas I found in particularly in corporate roles, you step into a job where you get an annual performance review and you get feedback once a year. Yeah. And it's not just corporate roles, whether you're a surgeon and you're in the medical field. Yeah. It's not often that even people with highly specialised skills are getting coaching, yeah. which is I've always found that incredibly fascinating because it doesn't matter what you are doing, by having someone who is really well equipped, like the examples that you have shared, to give you feedback will only make you better. It will only drive better outcomes for others, but it also inevitably for yourself as well. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I'm very excited to hear people talk like that. So my last two clubs I worked at before I joined Amazon, um, I worked with Anthony Siebold, who's an ex. Um, he, he's been all over the world. He's a very, very famous coach. Um, 
well, he was a lecturer before that. And so I first worked with him at Melbourne Storm when I came over. And straight away, we built up a, a strong friendship, primarily because he was obsessed with getting better. Absolutely obsessed. And so I felt like we had there was a synergy there and we'd just constantly share information with each other. And got to be honest, at that club, everybody's, obs- everybody's like that. That's what makes Melbourne Storm great. But having spent a lot of time with him, worked at a lot of clubs and, and seen the work even um, being in, involved with the club he's at now, that's that feedback loop that you talk about. I equally have found it fascinating, the difference between the sport world, where as an example, in an NRL club, if there's a team meeting at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning, the coaches will have prepared the messages they're going to land, certainly with, with Anthony Seabold. Um, they'd only be delivering a maximum of two to three key messages. And the analogy he uses for that is, if I've got five things that I need to land, it's not going to work. If I throw five balls at you, how many will you catch? You might catch one or two, maybe three if you're lucky, but you're not going to catch five. It's the same with the mind. You can't throw lots of key messages in a meeting and expect all of them to land. And also, No, absolutely not. He does an awful lot of research around memory retention. And what's the point in trying to teach someone something if they're not going to retain it? Then you've only learned when, you've only taught when someone's learned. And so yeah. there's so much science goes into it. But what it, what it looks like then is that 10 o'clock video meeting. One will be 15 to 18 minutes maximum because they lose concentration after that. There'll only be one, two, maybe three key messages, but then they'll constantly use recall to check that those messages have landed. Then they'll review the meeting as a staff afterwards. Did I have stage presence? Did I deliver? Could I have asked questions in a more, in a better way? Was everybody engaged? Was there anybody I missed who wasn't engaged? All of these different, and that is every meeting, every day, every single training day, all year apart from the six, eight weeks they get off at the end of the year. How much could you replicate of that to the business landscape, whether you're an owner or you work for a large organisation, to be highly effective? I I really, really strongly believe that's one huge takeaway from sport that I I try to implement. I think it's critically important that um, you engage. So even something as simple as this, so meeting primers, which we've used at various meetings. So... There's a lot of meetings in sport. There's not as many as there is in the business world. There's a lot of meetings in sport, isn't there? And so players have often been on the field. They might have had two meetings before the field. They go on the field. They'll be out there for 90 minutes, maybe longer. In Brisbane, the case of when I was working in Brisbane, maybe 36 degrees. Exhausted when you get off. So you go and do recovery, ice baths and whatnot, get your lunch, and you come into another meeting in the afternoon before for the gym session in the afternoon. And so much like in business, there might be some fatigue as you're coming into that meeting. And so it's hard to concentrate. So some great research by Dr. Wade Gilbert, who, who myself and Anthony work with uh, a fair bit around primers. So meeting primers is anything that engages you to create an environment where you're more likely to retain information. So it can be anything. It can be um, a funny YouTube clip that gets people laughing and joking and engages the brain all the way down to um, mats with different shaped stones on them that the players walk across in bare feet on the way in to the room. Or it might be that someone tells a joke at the start of the meeting. We had a basketball challenge. Uh, so just before the, the meeting, there's a basketball hoop up at the front and a basketball in the, in the theatre. Randomly picked out a player who maybe looked a little disinterested and said, okay, um, if he gets three out of three free throw shots, we might take five minutes off the meeting. Oh, the player's up, excited. It changes the mood instantly. So really primers just creating a change in mood that's going to increase the chance of learning to occur in the meeting. That's very cool. Could be music, could be the favourite music, could be a certain player's best tries. So 
Brisbane, I remember them putting on Anthony Milford's best tries. He'd been down on form a little bit. Straight away, the group's all looking around going, wow. And then, I really like that. It doesn't matter what team you're in, whether you have, when, when, especially when you're having a meeting, mm-hmm. everyone is walking in with lots of things on their mind. And yep. often it's not aligned to exactly what you're going to talk about in the meeting. So when I think of you talking about primers, yeah. it's really like an indirect way of setting the scene but authentically, organically, yeah. creatively to bring everyone yeah. to the highest possible mindset for whatever you're about to go through. Yeah, there's another quote I use, uh, and I use this in sport, but equally important in business. If you don't leave a meeting with something to do, you shouldn't have gone to the meeting. So I think as a leader and a manager, when you're scheduling meetings, it's really important that the people there need to be there because you should be really respectful of people's time. And so that can happen a lot in sport. There's obviously team meetings in sport, but they then have smaller group positional meetings. There's nothing worse than feeling like someone's invited you to a meeting. You actually don't need to be there and it's a total waste of your time. And it only takes one rotten apple to spoil the barrel, right? So that can affect the mood of, of the room. So that's one thing that leaders and managers, I think, can do at the outset is actually make sure the people there should be there. Another one that, again, never happens in sport, but I see happening in business is as if you're leading the meeting, prepare for the meeting and prepare for it properly and pre-send any materials that need to be sent there. Or, you know, some of the ways we use at Amazon is that give time at the start of the meeting to read the required documents, but don't turn up and run a meeting if you're ill prepared because it's you're not respecting the group. And it's the, you wouldn't get away with that in sport ever because the players would destroy you. If you turn up to present and you're not ready, it's just that's unacceptable. You know, standards are too high. And I see that missed a little bit in the businesses that I've worked with. So that's another one. But yeah, I definitely think, you know, primers are, are really effective. I think question asking in meetings is another one that's... Involving ins- everyone exactly. to participate and contribute. Yeah. And the other side of question asking in sport is utilised as a method for making sure, what well, checking, recall, checking that what I've said makes sense to you. So often I might present on nutrition. It can be so complex. And, and rugby league players, you know, it's just part of what they do. But doing nutrition doesn't guarantee they're going to be a better player. Learning skill does. If they can learn to run a certain play in a certain way, that guarantees success. It might guarantee they score a try, which is success. Sadly, nutrition doesn't have a cause and effect relationship. It'd be nice if it did, but it doesn't. It makes sense, but it doesn't have a causal relationship. So how do you validate that through question asking? Exactly. So it might be things like I'm trying to explain the importance of protein and the fact that protein can't be stored by the body. So you can't have 100 grams of protein for breakfast and then say I'm done for the day. Whereas you can store carbohydrates as fuel. So you can store carbohydrates as energy, but you can't store protein. So the importance of periodically ingesting that to allow your body to recover, for example. Trying to explain that, you have to keep it really simple. And so, so how would you explain that? So, well, exactly like that, really. That protein can't be stored by the body, whereas carbohydrate can. So you can store energy as carbohydrate, as glycogen. You can store it in your body, right? But you can't store protein to, to fuel recovery from the morning to fuel recovery in the evening. You, you can't do that. So that means as an athlete, I need to consume protein more regularly throughout the day. Correct. I can't just have my dose of protein exactly in right. the morning. And if you've got a heightened requirement for repair of muscles or you're trying to gain muscle, which generally athletes are nearly always in one of those two groups or both, then you need to be ingesting protein regularly. But you think about the common breakfasts, there's a massive lack of protein. 
And so if I'm explaining to players what this looks like, how I can check that it's landed to use recallers, so what might be a good breakfast, Tatiana? And you might say, um, like if you're a player, so I'm not judging you here, but you might say, oh, I'll have Nutri-Grain. So how much protein is in Nutri-Grain, for example? Almost none. Well, that's not going to work. But what if you had the high-protein milk from Complete Dairy? That would make that right, wouldn't it? So if a player, so therefore I know it's the message hasn't landed. And so I might need to revisit, well, and there might be others in the room because that's a common cereal, it's a common breakfast, sadly. There might be others in the room who learn from that experience. So by me asking a question to validate learnings occurred, I can then feedback to close that loop and say, well, now I know. And so I might ask someone else, well, what if you didn't have cereal? What would you have? And they might say, oh, I might have uh, scrambled eggs on toast. Brilliant. So why would you have scrambled eggs? Well, eggs are protein. Brilliant. Now I know that they've they've learned. It's an incredibly important lesson and it definitely makes sense. So the first time I stepped into a position where I was leading a team, I made so many errors by assuming something that I communicated Mm. was understood in the same way by everyone in the team. And then only when I would proceed to have one-on-one catch-ups with everyone on the team... And we're discussing whatever whatever topic it might have been or whatever, whatever update I shared, I was quickly starting to realise that everyone had a different understanding of yeah. the one message that I thought I had communicated. Yeah. And through lots of errors, I learnt the importance of recall to understand first how did someone else understand what I communicated yeah. and also as a way of helping me figure out how do I communicate more effectively. And sometimes... Yeah. It does take communicating with everyone individually. It kind of goes to what you said earlier. Yeah. The standardised approach isn't always the most effective yeah, yeah. because everyone is different. Everyone's yeah. perception, understanding, prior knowledge is different. So yeah. it, the very same message often actually gets heard in very different ways. It's, it's a great point. And I think that question asking, Anthony Seabold, for example, is genuinely world-class at that because it, it's not easy. And you start validating with question asking, you can end up getting a bit robotic. In, um, so do you want to... Read that back to me. What what did I say? You know, it, it's, it can be quite challenging. You've got to prepare for it. Like everything that if you need, want to do something well, you've got to prepare for it. You've got to practice it. And then you've got to review it to close the feedback loop. Um, but I think sport, again, is a great analogy. If you think about, you know, the field sports of rugby league or rugby union, they have players. Their games are made up of getting to a certain position on the field to put a play on, to try and get the fence to manipulate so you can attack and take advantage and score tries, points. And everybody has a role. You know, the saying is your roles, everyone's role is the most important role. Everyone has to do something very specifically for the play to work effectively. Now, if you're explaining a new play in a meeting and you don't use recall to validate learnings occurred, and this has happened and does happen frequently, you get out onto the training field, they run the play in the wrong way. Now, that can happen purely because they've not done it before. But when you question them, then why did you do that? Why did you run in that hole instead of that hole? Oh, I thought it was supposed to be that one. Right, well, learning didn't occur in the meeting, did it? So maybe we can do something differently. And and some of the ways they do that, um, again, this is led by Anthony, but is the different ways that people learn has been hugely insightful. And some of the um, surveys that you can put out to see how people learn, and definitely the Gen Z or Gen Z, the, the younger generations now tend to, to be field learners. They they If you put a a chart up on the wall back when I was playing, like it was just explained to you and you had to just learn it, which was really inefficient. Learn the play and execute. Yeah, really inefficient. Then kind of as it got a bit more professional in rugby, there would be whiteboards and it would be, you know, dots on a whiteboard and it would be diagrams. Then the video uh, feedback came 
much more prevalent. Um, and you could actually see it on the video replay. Actually, what we're seeing is younger athletes now, they want to do it. But having an appreciation for how the people in your group, from a business perspective, learn and retain information can be really valuable. You know, and then there's also that final step. I couldn't agree more, but the nurturing and development. So yeah. if you've got younger ages within the clubs or within any work environment, getting someone to teach a concept to somebody else, I find is the ultimate learning. So that's the most powerful tool in sport would be when players are teaching others. When it's player-led environment, you'll hear that term a lot. And as a coaching team, that's utopia. When it's player-led with high standards, when they're teaching each other, especially the senior leaders who've got the most respect and often the most experience, that is that is the perfect environment for learning. Highly There's effective. No question. Yeah. You've got extensive experience, both as a player and as a coach, and you're currently the head of business development for global sports at Amazon Web Services. How did you transfer all this knowledge that you've gained with sports teams into a corporate environment and working with top-performing sports executives and sports organisations. How does that look Yeah, working with companies? Yeah, so I'd been in high-performance roles for around 11 years. But again, with that, I've always had a real thirst for learning, as I'd said. And um, so what that looked like was every year I'd do a study trip. So I always portioned between 5 and 10% of my salary to learning. I would do something with that. Where you invest personally? Yep. Yeah. To oh, your own learning and development. Yep. So five, between five and ten percent, depending on other bills, <laughs> and where interest rates were up and whatnot over the years. Um, I would always invest that into into my learning. And so that might look like, for example, I do a study trip every year somewhere around the world. So when I was in England, that's how I came to Australia. I came to Australia to learn from the NRL when I was working in the English Super League, all self funded. And that builds network, of course, as well. So I would do that, but then I was also always looking like I needed something outside of sport because it's so consuming and it'd been my whole life. And so I started studying. I realized when I became a head of performance, um, which is basically just running strength and conditioning, sports science, medical departments, rehab, dietitians, running all of the department. I realized on with self-reflection, I was probably a reasonably poor manager. <laughs> and so I thought, you know what, I should do an MBA. That would be good. And so I was very fortunate. Clinton Free helped me get into the AGSM MBA program. And so, again, I was invested in my education to help make make me better. And so in doing that, I would, as a side project, I've been very data-driven. And so that lended itself to sports technology. And so I've been working with a company, Stat Sports, who do the player tracking in lots of field sports. For about 10 years, um, I'd been helping them with product development and how they should evolve and change things. And then in doing my MBA, I started doing a lot more high-performance consultancy. So working with with boards and CXO, um, C-level execs on essentially, here's what I do with elite athletes. Why don't you do that as an elite executive? And there's no there's no real strong answer I've ever had as to why they shouldn't. You know, it's the same. What are some of those things? Like what should a, an elite executive be incorporating? Exactly the same as an athlete. They should be preparing for what's coming. So if you've got really important meetings at certain points during the day, you might adjust your nutrition around those. Sleep is the priority for recovery, sleep and nutrition. So how often do you, and it's all very simple stuff, but why are elite executives not 
preparing for very important multi-million, billion-dollar decisions often in the day. The like same if, way as lead athletes do. same way as lead athletes do that. And, and everybody agrees. It makes so much sense. Well, of, of course I should be. It makes, it makes total sense. So I started doing, I was doing a lot more of that. I was doing a lot of speaking on what we do in high performance for the sponsors of the clubs I was working at. Finished my MBA. And um, yeah, I was doing a project with a company called Play in the Grey in New Zealand to, to use computer vision to track both sets of players because I wanted to see the effect of tactics on the opposition. They weren't going to give you their tracking data. And um, it was on AWS. And so that's how I learned about AWS. And that's how I ended up coming across to AWS. I think what was what was really interesting for me and what really helped me was, uh, one, I had a vast network in sports. So I was essentially just going to them and saying, have you thought about using technology in a different way in my new role at, at Amazon? But I wouldn't have been able to do it if I hadn't invested in my career both in network, in, in all those study trips created a very large network of friends, genuine mates, because we just constantly shared. I was open and shared and still do everything because there is no secret in high performance because every player and every group is different. But then that theoretical learning, like the MBA and the, the Masters in Strength and Condition Science I'd done then, they were equally just super, super beneficial to allowing me to transition into that business environment. Have you ever heard the... Uh, concept that Steve Jobs shared once that you can't really connect the dots of your life looking forwards, but mm. you can only do it looking backwards. And he was referring to a calligraphy course that he attended just because he was really interested in calligraphy, he had really yeah. nothing to do with any of his other interests, but it had such an influential role to play when he was designing the, yeah, the Apple, like the, yeah. and how important design was yeah. for the end user and how you actually interact with a piece of anything. And so when I'm listening to your story, I yeah. really think of the concept of connecting the dots uh, that you never really could have done by looking mm. forwards at the earlier stage of your career. I love that. I've not heard it before. I really like that. I think, um, I think growth mindset I read that book by Carl Dweck a long time ago. And I remember reading it, and lots of people are in this basket too, and just thinking, oh, my God, that's how I feel. Like, I genuinely feel like you can learn anything. I always use a quote. I know you've seen the, the keynote I do around uh, with Conor McGregor, who, like him or hate him, I love the fact that if you remove all the bravado, he's a kid who absolutely threw everything into progressing his career, and he came from nowhere and, and has become a global global megastar in whatever capacity we, we like him or love him. He was, he was absolutely all in. I think by investing and being all in and having a growth mindset that you can learn anything, but then equally not just being, Oh, well, like, you know, I, I can go and be a plumber tomorrow. Or I can go and like, it takes a long time. You, you've got to invest. And focus. Yeah. I think for me, investing in education and formal education, as well as like personal education, getting to know people and building network were both uh, really critical. And then there's another quote from, from um, Richard Branson. You know, if someone offers you a role that you think you absolutely love and you'd be incredibly passionate about, but you actually don't know, take it and then work out how to do it. I think I've probably had a couple of those. When I got my first ever head of performance job, I wasn't really sure what a head of performance did. I'd watched them and I'd worked for them, but I wasn't really sure what the day-to-day -day looked like. But I'd done a lot of research, I was willing to work hard, I was willing to go above and beyond and kind of worked it out because I reckon the pieces of the puzzle were there, I just didn't know what the puzzle looked like. And I think that's also 
really important. Like if you wait until you're ready, you've probably waited too long. Just do it. You're already too late. You've too passed late. the opportunity. Yeah. If you're willing to work hard enough, if you've got theoretical framework, if you've if you've got a growth mindset and you're willing to learn from people and you you know you've got no ego. Take the leap of faith, take the moonshot and go for it. That's it. Correct. Can you share one of the initiatives that you worked on at AWS with a sports organization? Yeah. I think probably the best, I like giving local examples. We've got some truly global, amazing examples, which are fabulous. But I love the local ones. And when I say local, I mean local to here in Australia. And so Swim in Australia, when I first joined AWS, Swim in Australia and and AWS had just um, agreed like a partnership. And Jess Coronas has kind of led that on the swimming side, who's phenomenal. Again, a genuine um, elite practitioner in her field who's incredibly humble and doesn't realise how great she is. She kind of led the way and she was like, look, when we first found we were working with Amazon, we thought it was for shopping. We had no idea. They didn't know what the cloud was, didn't know power of the cloud and whatnot. But the projects that we've, you know, I could talk about them for hours, but the, probably the most impressive is that once they aggregated all the different data, so in swimming there's lots of timing data, but there's also force plates, there's tons of data and it was all over the place, as is often the case in sport, in lots of different places. And it took Jess, who was one of the people on her team, months to create reports for simple things like ranking. So, you know, if you're a swimmer, where does Tatiana rank based on today's swim in the world? Like, are we even close? Because you got these four-year cycles for Olympics. And it was difficult to do that? Really challenging. Take her three months to create a report for the coach. So we had to solve that problem for them primarily, which we did by creating a data lake and whatever, and then you can access the data and you can analyze all the data for Tatiana in one place with one click of a button. You can create that port report with two clicks. Game changer. Then what we did that was really cool, um, and again, these are all Jess and the team's ideas, Greg Shaw, who works with her there, what needs revolutionizing in swimming, and it was the relay. And so the mixed medleys had been brought in, which had never been done before, so there was no previous historical data on that. So as a potential performance advantage, another thing Anthony Seabold talks about all the time in sport is what's your competitive advantage? Be really clear on what it is. And so Jess and Swimming are brilliant at that. They're always looking for what's our competitive advantage and they wanted to use technology to do it. And so all new to me, but in the swim relay, most often they use the bathtub model, which I'm hoping I've got this right, but is the fastest swimmer last, second fastest swimmer first, and then doesn't matter in the middle. The other two in the middle. Yeah. And so what they did was work with us to extract the data for which we'd created the data lake for all teams at every major competition internationally over the course of two years. And then just went over to Palo Alto and worked with our team, Solutions Lab team there, to build this machine learning algorithm that predicted the swimmers that Australia could use to beat the swimmers that the other teams had choose, chosen. So Live you mean in a live data type format? So based on the swimmers and the formation that other teams have put them in, yep. how Australia should basically place their swimmers in yep. the relay? So as an example, in the heats, there's a real competitive advantage if you can keep some of your faster swimmers out to use in the final. To preserve energy. Exactly. They're fresher in the finals. Equally, you might think a certain order is going to mean you win, but the model said it wouldn't. And so they tested this model, as you can imagine, to be able to implement it. But then they implemented it at the Tokyo Olympics um, and became the most successful relay swim team in Olympic history. Wow, that's Which, incredible. Now, it's important to know that is the coach making decisions 
based on the data, Using not, not the, data. the machine doing anything it didn't do. What the machine did was help them make informed decisions. Doesn't mean he listened to it every time. I don't know that, and, and, and we shouldn't. Um, but Rowan, Jess was able to provide Rowan, the head coach, with that information, and he was able to make decisions. And equally, that had incredibly well-trained swimmers who delivered the goods. But I think that's a cool example because that is technology, and you know you can get all fancy, as you would know, around machine learning and how it works and whatnot. But actually, it's technology allowing a coach or helping a coach to make a more informed decision. Still, it ends up being the coach that makes the decision, and the athlete has to perform to make to justify the decision. Nothing will change there, and I'm not sure technology will ever replace those two things. But being data informed is is really popular in sports now and it adds a lot of value. That's very cool. I love that example, mm. especially because not only did the Aussies win the gold medal, yeah. but I didn't actually realise that it was the fastest relay team yeah. in history. Most successful relay team, yeah. Paul, you've got a high-performance mindset yourself. What motivates you? Oh, I, I'm, um, I love new things. So I obviously started a, a new role in January this year. Um, I think I talked earlier about always chasing and in my playing career I was always chasing the impossible but I didn't I was chasing success but I didn't know what success looked like I never defined it probably still loosely in in that position I'm just I'm getting a little bit better at giving myself some some credit I'm really really strongly motivated by um, helping others get better now when I moved into coaching I realized that like it gives me goosebumps even thinking about it but the pleasure I get from seeing young lads who didn't think they could do something, do something. Or older lads, actually. I had a 27-year-old player once thought he couldn't get past 60 minutes because he wasn't fit enough. And the day he played 80 minutes, he cried in the dressing room after me. After Gave me a hug and cried his eyes out. Cried, grown man cried because he'd played 80 minutes in a game. He could not believe it. Tears rolling down his face. That's I amazing. can't tell you how good that made me feel. Selfish. I felt so good because I helped him do it. And I realised that as a coach, I absolutely love helping other people. The other thing I've realised I love, and probably should have realised it a bit earlier, I'm doing it 25 years, but I love being in teams. But I love being in teams who are obsessed with doing something that others think is impossible. So, like, crazy goal. They always say if, you, if your dreams, people don't laugh at your dreams, they're not big enough. I tell my two girls that all the time. And they, when I'm saying, like, what do you want to be? And they've got no idea. And I'm saying, well, if people don't laugh at it when you say it, it's not big enough. You need to Do you dream have bigger. one of those dreams now? Do you have a crazy dream? <sighs> Probably, no. I don't have a clear dream. I'd like to be, I'd like to be part of a team that helps lots of sports customers be incredibly successful using the cloud from my, my day job. And then from the mentorship stuff that I do in high performance, I'd like to see those coaches go on to progress in their own careers, more so than their teams winning. Like, I really want their teams to win. I think it's a consequence thing that the coach has been successful, but I work with lots of coaches in lots of sports now in high performance still. I kind of mentor in, and I love that, and, and I really want them to progress their career. I was really proud of the fact that lots of the interns who came in and worked for me, and interns, you know, students coming and working for free over the years are now heads of performance at some of the leading teams around the world. It's, I'm really, really proud of that. Um, so I think developing people and uh, feeling like I want to, I like lead and I've accept leadership positions. I've always been in leadership positions since kind of I finished playing. I was in many of the teams I played in, but I, I really enjoy that pressure, if you want to call it that, of, of being a leader. But then I, I think I know more, thanks to MBA and thanks to experience, I know more about what leadership takes now. 
I really, really enjoy working with um, people who want to achieve things that others think are impossible. So without yeah, giving away exactly what it looks like in a quantified way, it would be lots of people feeling like I help them get better. That would be that would make me really happy. It's a very strong connection to greatness. You've got so much experience working within high performance mm. and in sports. But if you had to give somebody who wants to achieve exactly the kind of goals you're thinking about, whether it be sports, whether it's starting their own business, whether it's within an, within an organisation, what advice would you give them knowing everything you know about high performers or what it takes to be a top performer? Success doesn't come in straight lines would be the first one. Like you, you, When you feel like you're not making progress, you are. I, I like a lot of, I read a lot about Buddhism. Like I, I love present moment. I love a lot of the philosophies around Buddhism and staying present, not holding on to things. So definitely, I mean, it's easy to say and very hard to do. But staying present, and I think equally, I'd be remiss of me not to mention the obsession. I think if you want to achieve something that's really, really challenging, you have to be obsessed. And the other real caveat is that true elite high performance isn't for everyone. Like, it isn't. Because I look back at the amount of things I've had to surrender and give up <clears throat> over the years as a player and a coach in, in elite sport, and even in elite business, quite frankly. You can't have everything and, and live this like. If you want to be the best of the best, you can't. You, can't, you have to, something has to give and you, it, that obsession is what drives that. So uh, I think once you accept that, which I did early, I just kind of resented that I gave it up for a little while and then didn't and then accepted it. I think if you want to achieve something that's not been done before or that's a real stretch goal for you and you're all in on it, you need to stay really, really hungry. You need to be prepared to listen to things that you sometimes don't want to hear because often there'll be the, the knowledge bombs, the little golden nugget that you need to progress, the key to unlock why you're stuck. And sometimes because of stress and pressure, we don't listen very well. So again, that's where the Buddhism side comes in, isn't it? And that if you can stay present when you're feeling really stressed, and again, it's easy to say it's very hard to do, that allows you to listen and to learn. But again, it probably ties into what we spoke about earlier, that if you're in environments where meetings are... Where, where learning is required, for example, meetings are set up to increase the chances of learning occurring. Those things are easier. They're harder when they're not. When you rock up to a meeting and there's a terrible PowerPoint presentation and speaker doesn't really like speaking because they're a bit nervous or whatever the case may be, or they don't speak clearly or they talk, whatever, but learning doesn't occur, all those things, progress is slower and it becomes harder. And if you're not in a psychologically safe environment where you can speak, then it's hard to give that feedback. So you can't close the loop, so you can't improve, which creates frustration and you get into that cycle of poor performance. And so if you're trying to achieve a goal, again, each industry is different. Definitely from a sport perspective, it's about sacrifice because that's the reality. Um, but if you want to be truly world-class, I think um, staying egoless, as much as possible. Staying. Egoless. So removing ego completely is is really important. And yeah, maintaining curiosity, but understanding that your progress won't be like this. It will be all over the place. And just when you feel like you're not going to make any progress, you will. And it probably, I like analogies and, and metaphors, but 
It's like an ACL. Re- anyone who's listening who's had an ACL reconstruction of the knee. Sadly, it's quite common in female sport at the moment, um, which hopefully, you know, with, with, with science and actual proper training, we can reduce. But um, that rehab journey, anyone who's been on one will tell you, just when you feel like you're making progress, you wake up and your knee's swollen and you can't train that day. And it's impossible to understand why. Just don't know. Even with all the advancements in science, we just don't know. So we speculate on it, really frustrating, you get on with it, or something you did yesterday you can't do today, and you don't know why, no one can explain it but you just have to keep going and you keep going because you know what the outcome is. You know what success looks like. You're obsessed. You're willing to sacrifice. And guess what? Inevitably, you get there in the end. I think it's the same if you relate that analogy. Again, hopefully the pictures in the head make sense. That um, That's the same with any endeavour, isn't it? Where you're trying to get to a goal at the end. If you're willing to sacrifice and you're willing to open-minded about what you might need to change you'll get there eventually absolutely great advice and I think you've summarized that really well it's uh, often when you're striving for a goal that is really ambitious and difficult to achieve yeah uh, you said success doesn't come in straight lines and it definitely doesn't come in straight lines and so often if you're not encountering obstacles and challenges you're probably not aiming high enough yeah look at Novak last night if you use another analogy watching Novak Djokovic's game last night, he's the best in the world by a distance. And if you rank where he is compared to uh, Dino, who you played against, first time major, or as we said earlier, look at the course of that game. I mean, only because of experience did people think Novak was never going to lose. I mean, I said that earlier. I didn't really think he was going to lose, but I don't know. I don't know a lot about tennis. You might have a totally different opinion, but the point was success, as in him winning the game, if you follow the trace of the match, he was in control, then he kind of lost control and the momentum of the game went away from him and then he regained it, got hold of it, won the game. Imagine if he gave up every time, he wouldn't be where he is. To be elite, you have to be prepared. Equally, if you flip it on its head and look at Dino, I'm sure today his coaches are reviewing his performance and saying, one, you can play as well as the best player in the world. What do you need to develop? The one thing that all the greatest have that I talked about with Cam Smith and Greg Inglis earlier consistency they can do it consistently at the highest level and they're able to when they do have a wobble get back and achieve consistency of high performance yeah they definitely develop uh, a supreme mental attitude compared to and this is with any athlete in any field or really not even just athletes but successful people in any discipline they really do develop this extreme mental resilience and self-belief yeah yeah. They never doubt that they will win. And I think you alluded to the game. It's really recent um, from last night, despite a lot of challenges. And there was a point and I was listening from TV and I was listening to the commentator start asking the question, yeah, yeah. do you think he can win? Um, because it was really evenly matched at one point throughout the game. Djokovic, now I don't know what he's thinking, but I can almost guarantee that there's no inkling of a doubt that he's going to win that game and that's often something that top athletes, top business people, anyone that's really successful, they just have this I'm going to win attitude. So I've got a question for you, that's right. I was thinking about it this morning. So self-belief is so important to everything. And you talked there about Novak Djokovic and and his self-belief is based on evidence, isn't it? Because he's been number one for so long, whereas Dino hasn't. And so... He can have self-belief, but it kind of isn't evidence-based yet until you get the runs on the board, which is why experience is so important. Do you think 
modern day and age, social media, connected world, do you think self, because I don't know where I sit on this, so I'm interested in your thoughts, that self-belief is easier or harder now than it was, say, 20 years ago? I don't think it's easier or harder now than it was 20 years ago, and I don't think that will change 20s into the future. I think it's all relative-based, but I think you did call out something that's really important, which is evidence-based self-belief. And so where there is self-belief that isn't backed by Mm -hmm. evidence, I don't think it has a strong foundation. Like you were talking earlier about an example with one of the best performance coaches that you've worked with, and he talked about the need for foundation and the right foundation before you progress to the next step. And I think self-belief is like that as well. The positive there is that evidence can absolutely be built and developed. You want to, you want to become a great salesperson, learn how to cold call really well, learn how to construct a sales deal and then put it in practice. And the more times you put it practice, the better you'll get at it. And suddenly that self-belief will have a backing. And so I think that's what the key is in anything that you're doing. Self-belief should come from a place that is evidence-backed. Otherwise, yeah. it has no foundation to back yeah. it up. Yeah. We talk about in sport, like, um, you find out the truth when your feet are in the fire, you know, when you're in the really match point, um, for example, or a tie break, say, in, in tennis. That's when you really find out if you believe in yourself. Like, do you, and, and we know with athletes, you don't get a chance to think, really. If you think, it's too late has to be autonomous. So there's, yeah, I mean, it's it's a cool thing. And how do you how do you get self-belief? I'm totally aligned with you. I think that's the, that's where feedback loops become so important, I think. And it maybe is something that in many businesses could get a little bit better at. Um, Absolutely. Reviewing. Uh, we talk about plan, do, review in sport, in one planning better and making sure that meetings and interactions with colleagues um, where required are, are really well prepared and you're diligent in that preparation then deliver them to the best of your ability with specific goals. So I wonder how many times, I know in sport, anytime I stood up to speak in front of a group, be it the staff in a staff meeting on a Monday morning or be it in the, with the players, I knew exactly how I wanted to speak. So at times I might be a little bit more softly spoken. At times I was, I was trying to put them in the place a little bit and raise standards for varying reasons, definitely with the playing group, but also with, with staff at times. Um, so you've got to do, how am I going to do this? And then review. Did I do what I thought I was going to do? I think that plan, do, review cycle, I wonder if how many businesses think of that. And I'd like to think that's something that can be taken from sport and implemented at the appropriate time in in business as well to build self-belief. Absolutely. And I think it can be done a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, And often I think it was just recently I was reading, again, I, I was either reading a book or listening to a podcast. I listened to so much information that I'm not the best of sourcing information, but it was actually talking to that exact concept, which is ideas are often developed in business, they're executed, but the closed loop is lacking. And so often when performance isn't met, there's very little analysis done on exactly why. And when there is analysis done, often what's done is whoever had an idea or whoever led the execution, there's a lot of excuses for why something didn't work and the truth-seeking is missing, whereas in the sports industry... It's a lot more transparent. The closed feedback loop is much faster. And I think if you brought a lot more of that back into business, you would move a lot quicker, but you'd also have a lot more accurate information as to why something's not working, why it should be changed, why an organisation needs to take a certain direction. 
that's more fact-based and evidence-based as opposed to, you know, someone potentially defending an idea that they had and why something didn't work out. It's a great point. So I've always said um, that I deal with corporates um, from a consultancy perspective that key takeaway with sport is that winning is expected. So yes, there'll be a celebration after winning a game, for example, and it's really important to celebrate wins and celebrating win- small wins builds momentum and all those things, but they v- move very quickly. So every win is reviewed. Why did we win? But tell you what, losses, they're reviewed exactly the same as well. And winning's expected. I think sometimes in corporate world, it can be, let's talk about our wins, talk about the wins, 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 wins. No one... How often are about... you talking about the losses? Yeah. And yeah, learning. well, actually, I've just remembered the book. So I don't know if you've ever read. It's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. So Andresine Horowitz, they now own one of the biggest venture capitalist-backed firms in the US, but yeah. he was sharing all the actual lessons he learned when he was CEO of his first few businesses. And so he talks about having to demote a loyal friend, fire an executive, fire three executives that you've hired for the same position, explaining yeah. that to your board. And he yeah. talks about all these genuinely hard decisions an organisation needs to make. And so one of those things was truth-seeking. So often when something doesn't work out, talking about analysing the losses, he was talking about how important it is for a CEO or a leader to really understand exactly what happened in order for the organisation to be able to move forward and be successful. Because he said sometimes that is what makes or breaks an organisation on its way up. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, an environment where everybody's on the same mission allows that brutal, ruthless honesty. And and, and I think that's where the... But it also gives purpose and it motivates. Yeah, that's where the greatest learnings happen and there's we all I, I've always said that I think humans all want to be part of a team and I've always been in teams like I said my whole life so maybe I'm hugely biased here. Um but I think generally people want to feel part of something. So in sport again they spend a lot of time. Another bit that I, again I, I say to um boards and, and C suite that I work with around they get to know a bit more about the person and about their family. Every every team I've ever worked at, not necessarily driven by me, I'd always support it, but actually I learned this from others. It's really important to know um, what your partner's name is, you know, when your birthdays, when you, when your kids' birthdays are, how old your kids are, what they're into, what they're up to. Uh, that matters because then you know more about the person. I rarely see it in the corporate world compared to in the sport world. It's everything. If kids come into work and we're coming to training. I get that's a little bit easier, and it's sport, so it's different. I understand that. But the power from knowing those sorts of things, um, it's really, really important to building connection and cohesion, which, again, is something we've not talked about, but connection in, in the group. I always say in sport you get very short preseason and a preseason period now in the NRL and, and, and the AFL. And so they get between varying players get more time off these days, but between kind of 10 and maybe 12 weeks of training with a break at Christmas with a new group. So there might be six plus times I've had 12, 15 new players in a group of 30, 40 players. They get that, let's say, 12-week period to get to know each other so deeply because they need to know when the feet are in the fire from from round one or trial one, really, these days. They're going to be judged by everyone, by the media, by the, the news, by their teammates, by the fans. They're going to be judged by everyone and they need to perform. So there's the skill side that's taken care of. The high performance side, largely done exceptionally well. 
the challenge, the biggest challenge is how do you make them into a team? Creating a team. How do you create a team? And I think that's where the probably some of the biggest learnings from sport transfer across really, really well. And you know what they're foundationally built on? Connection. Creating deeper connections. One, it's creating a genuine purpose. Like, yeah, we all, every, every team wants to win the NRL Premiership. Of course they do. No one's going to say they don't. Even the team that finished last last year is going to be striving to try and win the premiership. So kind of what what's our vision though? Like why? What are we prepared to do? Why is all the sacrifice going to be worth it? Because we're all on the same mission. So being really clear about what the values of the organization are and what we stand for and what we represent. So whether that's, you know, say in the case of, of Manly who have been doing a bit with uh, the whole Northern Beaches area, they represent the whole of the Northern Beaches area and their home is like a fortress, smaller stadium, it's incredibly noisy, it's, unbelievable it's atmosphere. a community it's a community you're representing the whole community so the butcher on the corner in the street you're representing him his whole week is determined by how much effort you put in not always by winning because they accept you can't win every game but they want to see you have a go and, and do your best and so they're the values of the organisation and then where's my where's my part within them you've got 12 weeks to build that some, some corporate teams I've worked with don't even consider it and they've got 52 weeks that you could work on it like what is your genuine, not values on the wall, it's culture, it's what are you? What do you actually stand for and what's my part in it? That's what everybody wants to know. How do I live that? And then, yeah, get into like recognition and reward around how you show people that you appreciate their effort. Yeah, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And often, like often in corporate environment with a team, it's you're in an environment where you're all trying to win. And again, it's not easy to create a team. It's easy to have a team, but to create a team environment. And I found that when you can create a team, everyone is genuinely trying to make everyone else better and it benefits everyone within the team but actually bringing that to it's deliberate effort Mm. it doesn't you know most of the time and I haven't seen it just happen organically it's having a shared goal going through shared challenges helping each other overcome each other's goals and often in corporate environments and businesses there's no incentive to do that Mm. and almost creating that incentive but you you said earlier a primer for a meeting, Mm -hmm. but it's almost like as a leader of a team, an organisation, or even being an individual in a team, being able to contribute to potentially a primer for creating Mm -hmm. a team structure is very important. Yeah. I think um, what you referenced there, I've got discretionary effort. So two things I find have been great takeaways from sport. One, incredibly clear raw clarity is really important for motivation. Everybody wants to know what's my part specifically. What does success look like for me? So in corporate land, that's a bit easier sometimes than sport. But because sport, it can be 10 things that we want you to achieve. You've got to narrow it down to three, you know? And so that can be challenging for for high performance coaches or technical coaches. In business, yeah, being absolutely crystal clear, raw clarity. And then the other one is discretionary effort referred to. So going above and beyond and often to help someone else in your team. So a, a pretty cool anecdote in how they tried to develop that in that 10-week period. When I was at the Broncos, again, Anthony Seabold led this, but took the leadership group and the senior staff away to Mount Ossa in Tasmania, which is the tallest mountain in Tasmania. So we flew in. We didn't know what was happening. We had all the gear for, for hiking. And an SAS soldier took us, and, and we hiked with 
you, know, you had to carry everything in, carry everything out. Uh, we did about 25, 30 kilos, which, you know, is nothing like the SAS carry, but we hiked at like breakneck speed for, I think, 14 hours straight to the summit of Mount Ossa in the day and then back down to a cabin together. Now, it was probably top three hardest things I've ever done in my life. It sounds but brutal. As you can imagine, I was tracking everything, so I had my Apple Watch on. And um, I had an, like an average heart rate for the first three hours, 167. So like I'd be reasonably fit at that point. I was gassed, absolutely gassed. We were drinking water from the from the from the floor, basically, from, that was running down the mountain. That's how you filled your water bottle up. But the whole point of doing that was to create connection in the group, is to do something physical together, because that puts your feet in the fire, that puts you under pressure, to achieve something no one else had achieved before. As in, you know what, at times we all thought we weren't going to get there because we went from climbing and the intense exhaustion to the snow, feeling like we we're going to fall off the side of a cliff, feeling like we were going to die, like we literally thought we were going to die. We were grossly overemphasizing it, but we did. But we were achieving something together. Everybody had to lean on everybody at some point. There was no way to avoid it. You had to do something for someone else. And it creates a connection that even to this day, I don't keep in contact with all those players and staff members. But if I ever saw them, I said, hey, what about Mount Ossa? They go, oh, and the memories come back because we know that memories are tied to emotion in the brain. So the memories and those feelings of how each of those, there's a level of respect there that will never go away. Even if I don't particularly like some of those players, it'll never go away. You formed a, a team on that mountain. We formed a team and there's a respect there. And that helped work, right? Might not helped enough to make us win, but that's not the point. The takeaway is find a way to create connection. Sometimes it can be through, you know, something physical, doing something like that. It could be anything, any sort of a challenge. Or sometimes it can just be helping each other through adversity where the team have got to come together. They've got no choice but to come together. And it could be mentally. You know, you can do like escape room challenges and whatnot. It can be that. But but what that does is creates a sense of, of uh, appreciation of one another that I think drives discretionary effort. Absolutely. I think it's great advice. Paul, you are so inspiring. Everything you talk about is high performance. Final question. If you had to give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, thank you for the compliment. I don't think I deserve it. But uh, this is a kind of what I alluded to earlier. I thought about this a lot. And, it, and you said, this was the final question. I, I did think about this. I, I reckon it would be, don't be so hard on yourself. Because one of my, yeah, my probably only, I try not to say I've got regrets, but we don't. But if I could turn back the clock, I, I'd, I'd love to um, be, a, be a bit prouder of myself when I was actually doing some pretty impressive stuff. That 12-year-old Paul would have dreamt of what 20-year-old Paul was. 20, I'd, been captain of England under 18s and England under 19s, which if you'd have told 12-year-old Paul that, and they'd go, what? All 12-year-old like, wow, Paul wanted Paul's to do is be a professional rugby player. And then I signed a three-year contract when I was 17. And so 20-year-old Paul was, was the most angry, unhappy, frustrated rugby player who'd achieved all 12-year-old Paul's dreams. Makes no sense, does it? Because I was constantly striving for something that I didn't even... If you'd have sat me down and said, write down what your goal is, it had been to play in the team... As soon as I achieve that, it's like, right, well, well, we need to win the competition. If we don't win the competition, we're all failures. And as an example, um, when we won the European Cup at Munster, I didn't play much at all in that competition, but I did in the other games, which you can argue helped the team 
and I definitely helped contribute to preparation and whatnot. But uh, embarrassingly, I refused to have a picture with the with the trophy. Why? I was like, well, I didn't win it. You know, a bit like another story about Roy Keane, who I idolised at the time. Roy Keane, when Man United won the European Cup, he didn't play in the final because he got uh, sent off in the semi or double yellow. He'd accumulated too many yellow cards. He didn't play in the final. And um, he doesn't consider himself a European Cup winner despite playing in every game. He was a bit different to me, by the way. But I didn't have a picture with the trophy. And I look back now, I've actually got a signed jersey with all the players' signed jersey in my home. And uh, I just think, what an idiot. You know, now I've got a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old daughter. 14-year-old is desperate to be a professional footballer. And they, like, laugh about dad's career. But I look at it, I haven't got a picture with the trophy. I only, <clears throat> only won two trophies in my whole career. That was one of them. You know, I loved it. It was a massive part of my, of my life. I haven't got a picture with the trophy. So if I could go back to 20-year-old Paul, I'd be like, hey, wise up and look at 12-year-old Paul and get a ground yourself a little bit, you know? I've heard people say a really powerful way to do that because I, it's, it's something that a lot of people feel and mm. experience, that exact that exact emotion that you've just talked about. And they said, you know, if you took a picture of 12-year-old Paul yeah. and you stuck him on your mirror mm. and you looked at him today and whatever you're going through, would 12-year-old Paul be proud of you and what would you want him to think and yeah. how would you want him to feel uh, as an incredible, powerful way to connect mm. but also bring yourself to that moment of being in the present and thinking about the kindness you would give to 12-year-old Paul yeah. should be sometimes the kindness that you give present-day Paul as well. Yeah, it, it's... It's another, I know it's a closing question, but one other point I think about a lot is um, this intense fear from the kind of era I grew up in and where I grew up in, in northwest England. Uh, it was a pretty tough place growing up. This obsession with never being perceived as, as arrogant or having an ego. I think I look at some of the people um, from that group and, and some very successful people, friends of mine, and I think we're all kind of in that category. But you've got to be careful to you got to celebrate wins yourself, you know, and I think I, I definitely didn't do a good job of that. Um, and I, again, going back to the athletes that I've worked with, I've tried really hard, but even today I see it where they're never happy. They're never happy because they feel like being happy is now, I'm, now I've settled. I'm not striving anymore, but it, but it isn't, you need to, you need, and I say, I'm still not very good at it. Striking the balance because it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do yeah. as well. Yeah, and maybe it's rewarding yourself. Maybe it's actually saying, when I achieve this, I'll do. When I achieve X, I'll do Y. So if I say I want to achieve that and I do, then I'll I'll surprise myself. Like we did a, a body fat challenge at, at work recently, and when we won it, regardless, when we finished the, the competition, we are all going out for a slap-up meal together and a few beers with, with, with the group. Uh, and we did that. Like that's a, a, an example of, of how you used to integrate it, but uh, I'd done that poorly. And so it's definitely something I try to encourage people not to do. Yeah, almost like recognising a milestone. Absolutely. The end goal and the goalpost will always be moving forward. Yeah. So not perceiving it as an end goal, but yeah. recognising it as a milestone. Yeah, and accepting it as good. Yeah. Rather than, yeah, well, it's still not as good as, you know, not raising the bar straight away and saying, well, I've achieved X, but I haven't got Y yet. Well, two years ago, all you wanted was X. Now you've got it. You're still not happy. Again, that's you know that's just why I've read a lot around Buddhism and stuff because that's it. Then then I'll be happy when is is a I think a plague in in elite sport now and definitely in in high performers. It's not all sunshines and rainbows with motivation and obsession and drive to be the best. 
Um, avoiding that I'll be happy when scenario is something that I find a real challenge. But uh, I think everybody who feels that needs to try and remove it. I'll be happy when and actually celebrate success. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for all your insights around high performance. I've been inspired listening to you and having this conversation with you. And I can't wait to see everything you continue to achieve. There's so many things you shared that have stuck with me and I'm still thinking about. Uh, And I can't, I'm just really excited about your journey. You said something about putting aside 5 to 10% of your savings for your own personal learning and development as something that immediately comes to mind, but incredible insights for anyone that's listening. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate having me on. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Moonshot. If you felt inspired today and are curious about taking your own personal growth to the next level, check out my performance coaching website at leadwithtatiana.com. For more insights, stories, and behind-the-scenes content, follow me on Instagram at tatiana.moonshot. And if you have guest suggestions or topics you'd like explored, send me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. See you soon for another inspiring conversation that might just be the catalyst to the growth you've been seeking.